Please do sit down, and it would be great help if you could open the Bibles again on, to the book of uh, Paul's letter to Titus, which is on page 1198. We're, going, we're continuing a series looking at the whole of this letter in little chunks through the, the, these weeks. Uh, we started last week, so this is the second one. If you weren't here with us, you can catch up on the website. I'm going to do my best not to fall in the pool while I'm talking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time now. And we pray that you would speak to us. By your Holy Spirit, through your word, enable us to see and hear clearly what these words mean for us in our lives today how they help us individually and as a whole church to know Jesus better, to live for him and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Jesus went up to heaven, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read his parting words to his followers. He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this morning, we have seen the direct fruit of that instruction, haven't we? With Amelia's baptism, as that commission to Jesus' followers to preach the good news about him, to reach the world, that continues even now today. And that remains the job of the church, God's people. And it's often been said the church is the only membership organisation which exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. Striking, isn't it? We want to see people who don't believe in Jesus come to faith in him and then grow in that faith in him. But as we began to think about last time, we live in a world where that is getting harder and harder. Where we are no longer playing a home game, but we're playing an away game. In a culture that used to tolerate Christians or even appreciate them, but is now increasingly suspicious of genuine biblical faith. That's the reality we're living in. That's the reality at school. If you're a young person and you're at school, uh, and you know this, when your teachers give a kind of slightly garbled account of what Christians believe, and you think, hang on a minute, that's, that's not what I heard from the Bible when I was at church. What are you talking about? And, 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 and then they tell you that, oh, no, every, every religion's the same, really. It, it all leads to God. You know, Jesus was, was just a, a great teacher, and the worst thing you can say, actually, is that Jesus is the only way. Even though, when you open your Bible, you can see that's exactly what Jesus said about himself. And that would be an odd thing for someone who is merely a great teacher and not the son of God to say. But that's the world we live in, isn't it, if you're at school? You know this is the reality in the workplace, at work. As you face increasing suspicion about Christian faith, probably not from everyone, but maybe from some. And you already feel the pressure not 
to be open about what you believe the Bible teaches. Maybe particularly about certain issues, hot topics in the world today. And maybe you feel even more just the pressure not to be open about the fact that you're a Christian at all. Those are the pressures that Christians face. And in this letter to Titus, Paul is writing to his his friend Titus, who, who lives on the island of Crete. And the point is, it's not a place that you would think Christianity is going to flourish. It's a place known for its godlessness. So verse 12, it's full of liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And we saw last time, Paul said, to change the culture, you're going to need to preach the truth. The truth that leads to godliness, the truth about Jesus, the gospel, the good news. Stick with that, he's saying to Titus. But okay, what does that mean in practice for a bunch of Christians in a hostile culture? Do we just get on with with preaching? We go and stand on the street corners? No, says Paul. What you need in, in the hostile culture is churches. And that is his instruction to Titus as he gets into the main body of the letter. And we think, hang on, you know, it was sounding quite exciting for a moment there as we heard about reaching a godless culture and the hope that maybe that might be possible. But your answer to that, Paul, is planting churches. You know, what do do rotors and kind of mediumly comfortable chairs and hard pews and digestive biscuits, you know, what, 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 what do they have to do with reaching the culture and the people in my workplace and the people in my school? And, people, and, and Paul is saying what the whole of the Bible says. God's plan to reach the world has always and only ever involved his people, the church. I will bless you, he said to Abraham, and through you all nations will be blessed. He said similar things to Moses about Israel. And then he says the same to the church. It may sound ridiculous to say it's going to be via the church that the world is transformed, but that is the plan. There isn't another plan. That's the point. It's us. It's the church. And therefore, in order to reach a lost world, churches need to be healthy. And in order for churches to be healthy, they need healthy leaders and healthy leadership. And that is the focus now in these verses. Healthy churches need healthy leadership in order to reach an unhealthy world and culture. That is what we're seeing here. So verse 5, put in order what has not been finished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He calls them... These people that Titus needs to to appoint, he calls them elders in verses 5 and 6. He calls them overseers in verse 7. They're the same thing. An elder is about who someone is, someone senior. An overseer is about what they do. They oversee, they shepherd, they pastor, they serve. And as we think about this, we need to see that this is not just about those who are paid to lead churches, for example. The staff team, the minister. It's about all kinds of leadership in different ways, that is exercised in local churches. In our context, that would be, for example, small group leaders, youth and children's group leaders, trustees, ministry oversight team. In different ways, 
These are leadership roles. And the key thing that summarizes what healthy leadership for a healthy church looks like is the word blameless. Can you see that? It it comes twice in verses 6 and 7. Blameless doesn't mean perfect, because no human being is is perfect. And there there are various words translated blameless in the Bible. The thought behind them isn't perfection, but being above reproach. Not having obvious things in your life that are going to bring you or the church or God into disrepute. So the question then is, okay, what does blameless church leadership look like for the sake of having healthy leaders for healthy churches to reach an unhealthy world? We're going to see three things. You can see on the back of the notice sheets, these headings if it's helpful. First of all, leaders to be blameless in both public and private. Blameless in both public and private. So verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The home is the training ground for the Christian leader. And this is challenging. It's challenging for me as a Christian leader to speak about this. Of course it is. It's challenging for my family to listen to me speak about it. Spare a thought for my children. See, they, They not only have to listen to dad preach, but they also have a Bible verse that is just about them. And actually the same goes at other times for other preachers and their families too. And immediately that makes us realize leadership in churches is different from leadership in other organizations, in businesses, or even in so-called public service in, in, in the world. So in law, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware, it, it's illegal to take someone's family situation into account when considering their employment. But in church leadership, you have this odd thing where legally you have a pastor employed according to the law of the land with a contract and terms and conditions and all the rest of it. But then relationally, you relate to a whole family who don't get a job description or a contract, but can both be subject to a load of unwritten expectations and feel those expectations as well. The point is, though, the home is a really good place to see if someone is cut out to be a pastor. Because church is a family. So if someone is struggling with leadership at home or it seems to be going wrong in some way, well, why would you bring the extra burden and the extra responsibility of leading an entire church family? The family is like a mirror held up to the pastor to see what they are really like. That's what Paul is saying. So the elder should be faithful to his wife, Paul says. Marriage is not compulsory for pastors at all. Paul wasn't married, as far as we know, writing this. But uh, for a start in that culture, he's ruling out uh, polygamy, which is less relevant in the UK culture. But he's saying, uh, this phrase is sometimes translated as, be a one-woman man. Again, that, that is, as this translation says, it's about faithfulness. Your private life matters because if you can't keep your promises to your wife, why would anyone believe you're going to keep your promises to your church or anybody else? That's the point, isn't it? Now, we said the principles here apply just beyond, you know, the senior minister, beyond the staff team. 
The degree to which you apply this test of home leadership will depend on how much responsibility someone is being asked to take on. And there are kind of different levels of responsibility in the church, aren't there? So the more responsibility you're given, the more it matters how you're using responsibility in, in, in other contexts. But the basic point is the same for all, and it's unlike the secular workplace. And unlike in politics, where this is particularly noticeable, I think, isn't it? You know, it, it, in church leadership across the board, you can't say, well, this is my public life, and this is my private life, and you have no business knowing about my private life. You can do that in the rest of the world, but you can't do that in the life of the church. You see, it turns out you can be prime minister and not even know how many children you have. Extraordinary. But you can't be in church ministry and live that kind of inconsistent life. It's a high calling, therefore, isn't it? The, 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 the writer Paul Tripp calls it a dangerous calling. Therefore, please pray for any Christian leaders that you know, including the ones you know in this church. Pray for their families in this uniquely strange role that they have as the mirror to that Christian leader's life. Christian leaders can only live the life talked about here with God's help in the power of the Holy Spirit. That should be obvious. It's not about the person themselves sort of somehow being intrinsically brilliant at doing these things. No, all of us are Christians who depend only on the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. So please pray for any leaders that you know with these things in mind. Because, why do we need to do this? Because an unhealthy world needs healthy churches to bring the gospel to it. And healthy churches need healthy leaders. But there's more to godliness than public versus private. There is also, secondly, from verses 7 to 8, blameless in both word and deed. <clears throat> so what do you think are the chief qualifications for church leaders? I think in churches like ours, we've often tended to focus on the, on the preaching and teaching side of things. So can you preach? Can you give a talk? Oh, okay, brilliant, you can give a talk. Okay, you should be leading a church. It has sometimes been said. And actually, we have massively undervalued the place of character in assessing somebody's suitability for ministry. We've mistaken giftedness for godliness with tragic and public results. And, and many here will be able to think of specific examples of where a minister's character and godliness has undone the whole of their ministry and brought them and their church into great disrepute. That is what Paul is saying here. As before he gets to, to, to um, talk about teaching, which is a, a necessary thing for, for church leaders, teaching and preaching, he highlights five negatives and six positives about character in Christian leaders. Now, why does he pick these particular ones in verses 6 and 7? Well, we can assume perhaps these are the ones that were particularly relevant in Cretan culture. They had become Christians, these people, out of Cretan culture culture and therefore it was particularly elements of Cretan culture that needs to be addressed in their lives. And as we look briefly at each of these, it's helpful to think of what we might add today as we consider the culture around us, although I don't think these are far off because Crete is quite similar in lots of ways to, to London. 
And you might read these and think, well, you know, surely these aren't just necessary for pastors. Surely this is what the Bible says should be true of all Christians. And in one sense, yes, that is the point. These are very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. But the point is, if Christian leaders are going to call other people to be godly in their words, if they're going to use their teaching to say, live this life and hold out what the Bible says is the Christian life, well, they need to back that up in their deeds or their preaching is hollow. Can you see? So what does he say? He says, not overbearing. So this is about the right use of power. So do you know that? Do you know the phrase? Do you know the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility? Where in the Bible does it say that? Well, maybe you think it's Proverbs or something. It's not Proverbs. It's not in the Bible. It's Spider-Man. You knew that, didn't you? <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. But it's quite a good phrase, isn't it? And it's, it's true. Because pastors have a fair amount of power over people's lives. Do you see that word manage in verse uh, 7? An overseer manages God's household. It's a word about being a steward. So the pastor isn't the head of the church. It's not helpful to talk about you know, the pastor as being the kind of boss of the church. That isn't the right language at all. Because the head of the church is Jesus. We saw that in a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12. He's the head. And actually pastors are are shepherds, but they're only ever under-shepherds. They answer to God, therefore. They don't have absolute authority. But given, nevertheless, a pastor does have what's often called not just hard power, where you have formal structures and you can kind of, you know, relate to people, but you have soft power, where you can influence people just by you know if, if a pastor says you should think about doing this it's different from if just a, a christian friend says you should think about doing that that's that's called soft power isn't it and pastors very much have that kind of thing and given the power that they have being overbearing with that can be a great temptation you see and again, our, our evangelical world is just beginning to wake up to issues around power that we haven't paid much attention to previously. We need to think about this not just in terms of pastors, but it will be the same if you're a small group leader. Somebody might listen to you more than they would listen to their friend or whatever. But no, don't be overbearing. We're doing the, uh, this big catch-up that we've talked about this term. And uh, hopefully if you're a regular, you've got an email about that on Wednesday, uh, but it would be e easy to turn that into an overbearing exercise where staff or others are overbearing with people in putting pressure on them to meet and do, or do this thing that we, 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 we want to do. And we wanted from the start to say, it's, you can opt out of this. We, we think this is going to be brilliant. We, you know, we're, we're positive about this. We think it's worth doing. We're excited about it helpful, genuine opportunity for us all to grow. But it isn't compulsory. And if you think you're, you're not going to get hounded if you say, you know, right now this is not for me, that's okay, that's fine. So don't be overbearing, Paul says. That's not the kind of person that you want. Not quick-tempered, he says. This is about patience, being patient. So when I... I, I Quite a long time ago, I was a teacher, very briefly. 
And uh, the inset days, I have to say, were a lot easier because they didn't have any children in school. And we used to kind of whisper to each other as, as teachers, you know, this job would be way easier if we didn't actually have to teach teenagers. And I know the teens sitting here are thinking, yeah, school would be a lot easier without any teachers. And then people say things like, you know, hospitals run a lot more smoothly without any patients. And sometimes it would be tempting to think, oh, you know, church would be much easier without having to deal with people. But people is what it's all about. That's the point, isn't it? It's not, first of all, about programs. It's not about buildings. It's not about, you know, money and all that kind of stuff. It's about people. And if you're dealing with people, you need patience. See, if you're constantly losing your temper with people in church life, well, that's a sign that you've forgotten the ultimate mission is not to put on an amazing show and have everybody see how great everything is, but it's to reach the world and to reach people. So not quick-tempered. Not given to drunkenness, he says. That's about self-control. Not violent. That, again, is about power. Do we lead by force or do we lead by example? By service or by self-assertion? Is it do as I say, not do as I do? Or do the deeds match the words? Not pursuing dishonest gain. Now let me give you a pro tip. If you want to be a millionaire, don't become a church leader. But no one should be fooled into thinking church leaders are above temptation in the area of greed. Now, I don't handle church money. I have nothing to do with it, nor do the others engaged in word ministry on the staff team. We share these things out so that no one person has the opportunity to control it all or run off with it all. And it's important to be open and transparent about these things. So those are the five negatives that he has. And then verse 8, rather he gives six positives. And these are like the fruit of the Spirit, kind of tweaked for a Cretan culture. Hospitable, loving the good, being self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now we could go into a lot more depth on each of these but this is really just another example of Paul's big point in this letter it's about sticking with the truth that leads to godliness if the preacher does not preach to themselves and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life well why should they expect anyone else who listens to them to do that either and we need to see again you don't get to switch off if you're not a church leader you need to know what to look for in church leaders both now but also maybe in the future you know both in this church and in other churches that you might be part of in the future I've seen pastors that I respect go off the rails because they and others have not paid enough attention to verses like this which emphasize the importance of character in Christian ministry that you know the minister who eventually admits 
you know, I haven't had a quiet time, you know, just a sort of time of me and God reading the Bible, praying. You know, I haven't done that for 14 years. Someone said that to me recently as he reflected on what had gone wrong for him. So pray for Christian leaders. You need to know they are sinners too, saved by grace, works in progress. The other thing to say on this is it's worth thinking through the issues around attaching ourselves to internet preachers or attending church kind of exclusively online. It's interesting that the opportunities we have in this online world, isn't it? And it's a brilliant tool for connecting us in ways that we couldn't have dreamt of even, you know, a few years ago. And, you know, online church, and we have a live stream of people probably watching this right now. You're welcome. It's lovely to, to, to be connected with you. And it's, it's brilliant when we're, particularly when we're ill and need to stay at home or away on holiday, away on business or whatever. But Paul is making clear that in the end, we can't just assess a preacher by what they say. Can you see that? You see from what he's saying here? Do you see? It's more than just about what they say. And the problem with that kind of distance is that you don't get to know the person who is preaching to you. We need to know them well enough to know, is what they say matched by what they do? And it's hard to assess that if you never meet them. So, of course, there are, you know, there's a convenience to, 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 to online at times. That, that, and that, that there's a great benefit sometimes to listening and to, to people that you don't know. But I would caution us against making that the main diet of our Christian lives. It's not real church. It's not real relationships. It's not going to help us to be part of a healthy church reaching an unhealthy world. So, blameless in both word and deed. And then thirdly and finally, from verse 9, before we finish, blameless in both teaching truth and refuting error. So we heard back in verse 2, Paul says, God does not lie. So the gospel is true, we can trust it, it is trustworthy. So the pastor must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Can you see that in verse 9? As it has been taught, as it has been taught, in just a few words, that is reminding us of the value of what we call theology. So if you're having an operation in hospital, you want a qualified surgeon to be doing the procedure, don't you? It's obvious. If you're listening to someone teach and preach the Bible, not just in sermons like this, but in many different church contexts like Bible studies and the rest of it, well, you want to know that for whatever that context is, that they've got appropriate training that enables them to lead and to, to, to preach and teach in, in whatever way it is in that context. See, it, it's important that we take that seriously. And that, that's why we support, we've got what, among our mission partners, we've got Oak Hill Theological College, training ministers in the UK, and we've got the, the Miller family, training pastors in South Africa. And when you are training people for ministry and ensuring that they are trained, Paul is saying that will enable the pastor to both encourage and refute. So the theologian John Calvin talked about the pastor needing two voices, tending to the flock and guarding against the wolves. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about wolves next time, verses 10 to 16. But for now, we just need to see that in a culture like ours, it's tempting to just want to do the encouraging, just do the positives. 
Paul says you need to do both. So think of shepherds. This is how it works with shepherds, isn't it? A shepherd that only does one of those things is a bad shepherd, aren't they? You know, a, fo- a shepherd that focuses exclusively on the flock and being loving and encouraging, but ignores the wolves that are threatening the flock. Are they really loving the flock when they do that? You know, look, oh, look, look, here's a wolf and they're coming in and they're teaching false things about God. And look, oh, look, 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 there's a wolf and he's carried off one of the sheep and he's eaten one of them. He's eaten one of the sheep. And, and the, the, the shepherd is like, oh, no, I, d- I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to cause any problems. It's like, no, 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 the wolf is actually eating the sheep. See, the shepherd will do both. Now, of course, you could go too far the other way. And the shepherd whose only concern is to fight off the wolves. And, you know, here's a sheep in need of food and encouragement. But no, 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 I'm afraid I've got to go stand outside and watch for wolves. I, I, I haven't got time for you. You just have to go hungry. The pastor needs to do both. Do you see? And in our culture today, that increasingly means needing to be clear on unpopular issues. Where the church is under pressure to change. Right now, the church is under pressure to change what it thinks about marriage. We began to think about that last time. We'll think about it more again next week. But you see, you, you, you have to be able to do both and look for that in those who are leading. So pray for pastors, Christian leaders. What have we seen then as we, as we come to an end? Healthy churches need healthy leaders in order that those healthy churches can reach an unhealthy world. And the final thing to say is that the church always needs more leaders. Not necessarily right right now, right here in this particular church, but the church at large needs people who will proclaim the truth that leads to godliness and transform the world through the work of local churches. So we need to ask each other, could that be you? Now or in the future? In the UK or overseas? Male or female? We need Christians to be involved in different ways in leading healthy churches so that they can reach an unhealthy world. In the second reading we heard from 2 Timothy, Paul says, uh, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. See, faithfulness and taking seriously what he's saying in in, in Titus chapter 1 isn't just about standing firm here and now. It's about the next generation of teachers and preachers and leaders of healthy churches to reach an unhealthy world. Well, who's that going to be? That's the question. We need to pray and we need to commit ourselves to living out this pattern that Paul gives us here as a whole church so that we can be a healthy church to reach an unhealthy world. Let's pray now.
Father God, we are very aware of our shortcomings as individuals, some of us as leaders, all of us as a whole church. We ask for your grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him there is new life, a new way of walking as we turn from our sin and we turn and trust in Jesus and follow him. Help us, whatever our role, to be doing, taking our part so that the church that you've put us in would be healthy. If we're yet to trust in Jesus, help us to see more and more clearly what it is that Jesus has done, what it means to follow him, what it means to be part of his people to reach the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.